Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Welcome to Horizon West Church team. Thanks for leading us. Uh, man, fun to sing the songs of Christmas together, isn't it? And I think we're just going to keep adding more until our Christmas Eve service when uh, we'll be just starting to finish doing Christmas-themed uh, music. And uh, I want to really invite you, I know Austin already mentioned it to you, but if you're in town over the Christmas holiday uh, and you're here on Christmas Eve, we'd love to have you not only participating and attending uh, our 4 o'clock service that day, but also it's a great chance to invite neighbors, coworkers, friends. Um, you may have been coming to the church for years, you may be brand new, but if this is an experience that you want other people in your life uh, to have, then share it with them. We've got some ways for you to do that. You'll hear about that at the end, but I would encourage you, maybe even this afternoon, talk it over with a spouse, a roommate, a friend, just who are three to five people uh, that really need to hear this good news uh, of the gospel, and the Christmas Eve service will be a great chance uh, to do that. We are two weeks from Christmas Day. Uh, Dad's husband's in the room. Let me give you a little uh, life lesson learned. Though your wife might buy all of the kids uh, presents for Christmas, you have to buy hers. She's not going to do that, okay? Um, And so just make sure, again, two weeks, 14 days, shipping, all of that, factor that in. I'm really only talking to myself, but if that helps you as well, then you can glean from that wisdom. Uh, I, I encourage you to do that. I spent yesterday, uh, as some of you did, doing two things. One was mowing my yard, um, and I hadn't done that in a while because it's not raining all the time anymore. So we actually get a little bit of a reprieve, but I was in the yard a good chunk of the day yesterday. And when I wasn't in the yard, I was sitting on my couch watching what we call soccer, watching World Cup football. And uh, man, what a day it was for, for soccer, for, for football. Uh, in fact, one of the matches in the morning, and I apologize, this is a spoiler alert, so plug your ears if you don't know the score yet. Um, but there was an upset, Morocco upset Portugal and became the first team from the continent of Africa to make the quarterfinal in the World Cup, which is really cool, I think. That's awesome. Uh, but, but the reason I share that with you, what stood out to me was not only that the players on the field, as you can imagine, they're, they're just, I mean, they're elated. They've worked for four years together as a national team to accomplish something no other team, not only from their country, but from their continent has done. Uh, but not only them, it's, it's the fans, you know, in the stadium, and they're like losing their minds and waving the flags and going crazy. But then they have this thing Fox Sports is doing, it's called the Fan Cam, I think. Have you guys seen this? And it shows the, the, the like capital city of the country that's won the soccer match or when a goal is scored, and it was just wild to watch thousands of people. Uh, you know, the, the camera doesn't even catch them all, but there's thousands in the shot, and you're watching their face, like you're, you're facing that way with the camera, and when the goal scored, and they just go nuts. And there's like guys my age who are probably accountants, and they're just like weeping, you know, as if this soccer match has anything to do with their actual life. The reality is... More than likely, those dreams come to an end on Tuesday or in the World Cup final, even if they go all the way, even if they pull off the most remarkable feat in World Cup history. The joy of the moment is going to come to an end. 
And here's the good news about Christmas. The good news of great joy that the angel said is going to be for all people was not going to be a temporary joy. It wasn't one that was going to rise and then come crashing down because it was going to bring a joy. And in fact, it did bring a joy that is lasting and that goes all the way into the spaces of our own souls and lives and relationships and brings transformation to the way that we live. This is, in fact, good news. So we're going to go to Luke chapter 2 together as we are every week in this month. And I want to read yet again Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. You can follow along with me. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests or peace to those with whom he is pleased. We spoke last week about the good news, what it is and what it produces in our life. And today I want to tag on to that good news of great joy. I want to talk to you today about joy. The reality is joy is something that every person needs and most people don't have. It was Henry David Thoreau who said in his uh, Walden's Pond uh, poem, he said, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Meaning most of us live lives that, that fall under the radar of joy. We punch the clock, we maintain the house, we do the things, but there is not the joy of the Lord with which we were meant to live. We just walk through life joyless. And you know, marketers have, have picked up on the power of joy to get people to spend money. It's called joy marketing. This is a real thing. You can look it up. Joy marketing. They figured out that if they can connect the feeling of joy with something like a beer uh, you know, product or a car insurance, they can sell more of them because you'll have a feeling of joy that you attach to the time that you bought that product. Hollywood is also picking up on this. So we have shows now like Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and Ted Lasso who are, are these are like feel-good shows. They're designed to capitalize on the idea that we all want to feel something like what joy is and what it produces. And I want to say this really clearly for those who may not know, joy is not found there. You cannot find it in a better beer, a cheaper car insurance, a great TV show. Even when the third season of Ted Lasso comes out, the joy will only be temporary. Your soccer team, your football team, whatever it is, that joy is not the place that Scripture drives us to to find real and lasting joy. So the question becomes, where then does joy come from? I want to this morning give us three secrets to living with joy that come from the Word of God. And these aren't secrets because I made them up or because no one else has found them. But they are truths, realities, secrets, if you will, that are hidden from most of the people that you know, that you live with, that you work with, that you do life with. If I were to tell you that there was treasure to be found somewhere in the world and gave you a map to find it, 
the key to finding that treasure would be having a map that actually leads to the place where the treasure is, right? We've all watched these movies where somebody gets like a dummy map and it leads them to the wrong place. Most people in life are following a dummy map. It's leading them to something that is not joy. They put all their hope in it and yet it doesn't deliver that for which they were looking. And so they search for the treasure of joy in sex or in pleasure or in success or in work. And they think that these things are going to achieve joy and there's great disappointment when they don't. See, the problem is that most people don't desire too much out of life. They desire too little. This is what C.S. Lewis articulated when he said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to lift our gaze to a greater joy, a greater thing to desire that will not disappoint Psalm chapter 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I'm going to go out on a limb a little bit here and say that there's probably some of you in the room that at one time believed that verse to be true and you're struggling to believe it now. You go, Chris, I've, I've been faithful. I, I've stayed active in the church. I've served the Lord. I've done the disciplines. I've, I've tried to live the way that I'm called to live and I don't feel the joy that you're describing. My prayer this morning for me and for all of us is that God would restore to us the joy of our salvation. And I think he's going to do that as we grapple with these three secrets. Here's the first secret that you need to know. Joy is revealed in Jesus. Now, we know this from the New Testament. If you were to look in the Old Testament, the word that is translated most often as joy or rejoice or celebrate, it's the word sema, and it's often associated, maybe most often associated with the Israelite people winning a war or a battle. And so they come home rejoicing, sema. They, they have this, this elation because they won the victory. Or it shows up during their festivals, their annual festivals, where they remembered when God showed up and delivered them from their enemies, gave them victory. In other words, for the Israelite people of the Old Covenant, joy was contingent on what was happening in their lives. If they were in Jerusalem, celebration. If they were in exile, mourning and despair. If the temple was built, they were happy. If the temple was destroyed, they were dejected. And what we see in the New Testament when Jesus shows up is that unconditional joy is possible because of Jesus. In fact, everywhere that the message of Jesus shows up in the early part of the New Testament, it is followed by this promise that the angels gave of great joy. First, Mary, remember this young teenage girl who's told by an angel that she's going to have a son named Jesus? And this is Mary's response. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary then travels a little bit of a distance to go see her cousin Elizabeth. And Elizabeth has also become miraculously pregnant. She's carrying the, the child that will become John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. And listen to what happens when Mary and Elizabeth, these two pregnant moms, show up together. 
She says, Elizabeth says, for behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. There is almost no better feeling of joy than for a young mom having her first child kicking in her womb. And Elizabeth goes, man, this happened because your child, not yet born, and my child, not yet born, came into proximity. And where Jesus was, there was joy. And then right in the passage we're looking at today, it says the shepherds returned, glorifying God, praising God for all they'd heard and seen as it had been told to them. Everywhere that the message of Jesus and the announcement of his birth went, it was met with joy. This is why we sing, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Joy is revealed in Jesus. I know for me, and maybe this will resonate with some of you, when I was a younger Christian, first following Jesus, 15 into my kind of 16th year of life, um, man, I was having experience after experience that was just stoking the flames of the joy of the Lord. Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is our strength. I felt that as a young Christian. I can remember when I was first uh, discovering the word of God, not as something being preached over me, you need to know this, but as something that I opened up and read and devoured for myself. And that was life transforming. I can remember at 15 years old opening the book of Proverbs, which I'd never really spent time in. I'd probably heard a proverb here and there. And I read chapter one and was like, wow. And then two and then three. And I felt like my brain was just being opened and God was dumping wisdom into my mind from his word. And before I knew it, I had read all 31 chapters of the book of Proverbs. It was easy. It was enjoyable. The joy of the Lord was my strength. And then I, I got turned on to, to worship music like Delirious, if you remember them. Delirious was like nothing I had ever heard. These guys were rock and rollers that were worshiping the Lord with their music. And so in order to be able to really, you know, get into that frame of mind, I taught myself how to play guitar. It wasn't hard. The only thing you have to do to be able to play worship music on a guitar is no four chords. C, G, D, E minor. No knock on a worship team. They're way better than I ever got. But I'm just telling you, life hack, if you don't want to make a name for yourself, you don't want to stage, and all you do is, and so it's all I did is I just learned these chords, and I started playing these songs of Delirious and these songs of late 90s youth group worship, and, and I was devouring what it felt like to worship my Savior. I remember on one occasion I was playing, and I was just like, totally consumed with the joy of the Lord and the presence of God. And it just so happened that it started raining outside at the exact same time. And I was still in high school at that time and, and I just put my guitar up and I went outside and I laid down on my driveway face up and just felt the rain from heaven soak my body and felt like it was the love of God just pouring over me. And if I'm truly honest with you, I often ask myself, man, where did that joy go? And then it dawns on me, life happened. When I was 16, I lost my grandfather suddenly to a heart attack. One month later, learned that my mom had cancer. Two years of prayer later, those prayers weren't answered the way we wanted, and my mom passed away. And I immediately left for college 1,200 miles from home and experienced my first heartbreak. And then I woke up one day, and I had student loans and a mortgage, and I was like, wow, God, I miss some of those early days when the joy of the Lord was really my strength. 
And it may be that some of you can relate with that. You go, man, there was a time in my life where, yeah, I remember the worship flowing authentically. I remember the hunger that I had for God's word. I could pray and not feel like it was bouncing around the ceiling, but then life happened to you too. And for you, maybe that was a painful divorce, or maybe it was the loss of a job that you loved, or maybe you didn't get into the school that you always dreamed of. Maybe you experienced financial devastation. The joy that was revealed to us in Jesus, I believe, is still in there. It's still in me. It's still in you if you know Jesus. But the reality is that life happens. And so we've got to anchor ourselves in this second secret, which is this. Joy is rooted in truth. It's got, it's got to have a place to put roots down and get into your life. Otherwise, you just ride this roller coaster of life up one minute, down the next. Found out this week that the word of the year in 2016, Oxford Dictionaries every year produces their word of the year. And the word of 2016 was the word post-truth. I found that fascinating. Post-truth is described in this way. It's relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. This is what marketers have cracked the code on. And, and, and here's the result. We now believe what feels good. And if we don't feel good about it anymore, we don't believe it. So, so our, our brains, our objective uh, thinking is being bypassed to just be conditioned to do what we feel. And I need you to know this morning, joy is not a feeling like happiness. It's not dependent on external circumstances. Joy also is not a personality trait like fun or outgoing. We've all known people that were fun and outgoing, but they did not have joy in their soul. One of the first examples for me when I was growing up in the 90s was when Chris Farley, the, the brilliant comedian, died of a drug overdose. I mean, every time that guy was in front of a screen, he was the life of the party, this larger-than-life presence, but battling demons in his mind. And then we all remember when we heard Robin Williams had taken his life. Went, man. No one was funnier than Robin Williams. No, no one was a larger presence. And then, and then we just keep hearing about uh, another person who, who seemed like they had it all together, somebody that seemed like they had so much to live for, but they didn't have joy, and the result was death. The truth is that joy cannot be seen merely by looking into a person's face or observing their life. It is located deeper in the seat of our soul. The joyful person is not simply one who's more positive or optimistic. It's one who's continually rooted in truth. And so I want to ask this question and answer it together. What is the truth and how does it produce joy in the soul of a Christian? Right? It's, it's revealed in Jesus. We know that. It's rooted in truth. And here's the answer. If you're a Christian, you've been created in the image of a God who loves you. You've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus who saves you, and you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit for life abundant. That's where you find joy, because those objective facts don't change from Sunday to Monday. They don't change when the child that you prayed for and invested your life into walks away from God, as hard as that is. They don't pray when you've begged God for a child and that child has not come. They don't change when, when your relationship falls apart, when your job ends. The truth of God's word remains rooted in our soul and it is there that we find joy. 
In reality, many of us often have feelings that go like this. I'm worthless. I'm a failure. I'm hopeless. And God's word says you're not worthless. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're not a failure. You're more than a conqueror through him who loved you and gave himself for you. You're not hopeless. In fact, we say with Paul, we're confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. A pastor I sat under as a young adult used to say, truth is not what you feel is true, it's what God says is true. And if joy for you and if faith for you is a feeling that, man, when I'm in church on Sundays, I can really get around that and believe it. But when things get hard on Tuesday or Wednesday, no, 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 root yourself in truth and you will always know the joy of the Lord even in hardship. You've heard it said there are two sides to every story. It's also true to say there's two ways to tell any story. Used to take uh, missions trips to Haiti. I've taken three or four, and, and often we would lead college students on a trip down to Haiti. Um, and what's always very interesting when you see somebody or talk to somebody who's come back from a missions trip, or maybe you've been on a missions trip, is people always go, well, how did it go, right? And in that moment, you have an uh, opportunity, you have an option. You can answer it in one of two ways. Both could be true. One way to answer that when I'm coming back from uh, a, w- a week or 10 days serving in Haiti is to say, well, it's really hot. <laughs> you don't even have fans, so you're like sweating while you're sleeping. And then you wake up before you want to wake up because roosters are literally crowing and you don't have a sound machine to drown it out. And then you eat a breakfast that you wouldn't normally eat and then you pack a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in a Ziploc bag and spend 12 hours in hard labor and then you come home and you just do it over and over all day and nobody speaks the language that you speak. That's how it was. Or somebody says, hey, how was the the mission trip? And you say, and it was unbelievable. My team and I, we we got to help build a school for children who otherwise would have no opportunity for education. And not only that, but they're going to be educated not only in the maths and sciences, but they're going to be taught the way of Jesus, and they wouldn't get that opportunity otherwise. And let me go further. I had the chance to share the good news of Jesus with somebody, and there was a a translator translating, and that person gave their life to Christ. And along the way, I had the most incredible experiences in a new place and even learned some new words in Creole. It was unbelievable. God showed up. See, both of those stories are true, but only one is the truth. Because the truth is telling the whole story. And your story is not true if you are a believer in Jesus. Your story is not true unless it includes the overcoming power of Jesus. What so many of us do is we rehearse our failures. We rehearse our our inadequacies, our limitations. And I'm not denying that those are there. I'm not denying that we have them. What I'm saying is, you're not telling yourself the truth unless you include, but the grace of God is sufficient. His power is made perfect in weakness. So root yourself in truth. This, by the way, is exactly what the Apostle Paul found a way to do when he told his story to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 at verse 8. Listen to how Paul integrates what was hard in life with the overcoming truth of the power of Jesus. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, yes, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 
Could it be, brothers and sisters, that the hardships you face are meant to manifest in you a joy that surpasses the worst of life? Because here's the third and final secret you need to know about joy. Joy is refined through suffering. You can't know true joy until you have suffered faithfully. Several years ago during my quiet time with the Lord, I, I got out a notepad and I felt impressed to write down the names of the people in my life that had most exhibited the character of Christ. Now, I'm not their judge. I'm not anybody's, you know, but I just was like, who are the people that when I'm around them, I'm reminded of Jesus? And I made a list that included 10 people. There were some men, there were some women, there were some introverts, there were some extroverts, there were some wealthy people, there were some not so wealthy people. There were a couple of pastors, but most of them were not in vocational ministry. Put their names down on a notepad. And then under each name, I wrote down the characteristics that, that most kind of describe them. Like what impresses me about this person's life? One of the guys, Gary, is the kind of guy where he could like be checking out at Publix and lead the person to Jesus within two minutes. You know, he's just an evangelist. Another one was a prayer warrior. Like I knew that every morning she was on her knees with a list begging God to intervene in the lives of people. Some were able to preach with remarkable effectiveness. Some were simply just faithful over a long period of time. But I, in all of them, I found ways that they exhibited Christ-likeness. And then I scanned that list for the common denominators. Did you know there was only one word that showed up on all 10? And it was joy. All 10 of these men and women exhibited joy in their life. And part B to that, all of them had experienced joy through suffering. In just that short list, there was cancer, there was the loss of a spouse, there was loss of a child, there was failed marriage, there was prodigal son, prodigal daughter, prodigal son, prodigal son. Like these people didn't have picture perfect lives, nor did they pretend that they did. They didn't walk around with fake plastic smiles in their faces, weren't happy-go-lucky people. What they had was an abiding joy in Christ that was rooted in truth and refined through suffering. This is what James calls us to in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. He says, Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know truth. You know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. It might surprise you and delight you to know that when James says, Consider it pure joy, the Greek word that he uses there, kara, is the same exact word that the angel says, This is going to be good news of great joy. See, we think of that as exuberance. Man, Jesus came, so people are happy, people are excited, people want to tell the story, and James says, yes. And when you go through suffering, consider it the same kind of thing. God is doing something in you. He is refining your faith. He's refining your joy. How, how does this happen? How does suffering produce this? Here's the answer. Suffering produces pure joy because it it removes the allure of lesser things. It, it, it takes from us the illusion that other things besides Jesus could satisfy us. Earlier in his career, Tom Brady, after already having won MVPs and Super Bowls and being married to a supermodel and, and having millions and millions of dollars and international fame and good looks, I mean, it's unfair, right? 
And this interviewer on 60 Minutes is talking with him, and Tom rehearses all the things he'd accomplished at the age of 27. He said, at this point in my life, I've already done everything people said that I could possibly do. And he said, and I think to myself, God, there's got to be more than this. The interviewer said to him, well, what is it? And his answer, sadly, was, I wish I knew. See, see, you can chase joy in money. You can chase happiness in circumstances. But when you get them, when you achieve what you desire, you will find it is empty. Conversely, the Christian, the follower of Jesus, rooted in truth and refined through suffering, can find joy not only in our successes, but even in the hardest places of life. The Apostle Paul, again, in Philippians chapter 4, and by the way, he's writing from a prison cell, says in verse 11, Not that I am speaking of being in need. I've already learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul says, I've learned the secret. That word in Greek is mueo. It's, it's one word that we use like five words to describe. I've learned the secret. That This word only appears one time in the New Testament, which makes it hard for translators, right? Because there's not other places to put frame of reference. They go, this is the word. But in culture, this word, this Greek word mueo, was a word that was used by Plato and Aristotle and guys like that. And it was to convey the idea of knowledge, not that's given to you from someone else, but knowledge that you've experienced personally, that you know by walking through life. Paul says, I've mueo, I've, I've learned the secret. And here it is. I live everything in my life through Jesus. Now, if joy could be found, if fulfillment in life could be found outside of Jesus, Paul would be able to tell us that. Whether from a religious, a, a reputation, a socio-political, I mean, whatever he had to his, his name, it was more than we have. And Paul said, I consider all of that rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. Paul says the secret of contentment is to do all things through Christ. Some of you, like me, are not fans of flying. Can I see a show of hands? How many of you do not enjoy getting on an airplane? Come on, y'all lying. I know there's more than that. I've, uh, I've been through a rough flight, and it only takes about half of one of those to make you not want to fly again. But do you know I do it? Like, I'm not paralyzed by that fear. I do it, and there's a very simple reason. You can't really experience the world unless you're willing to get on an airplane. So I endure the discomfort, to say it lightly, of flying because I got to go to my honeymoon in Santo Domingo with my wife in 2010. I get on an airplane, though I don't enjoy airplanes, so that I can go with her to see the Eiffel Tower in 2018. I get on an airplane because through flight I can touch down in places like Port-au-Prince and share the gospel with lost people or in the wake of the hurricane go and bring much needed resources. All of that would not be possible if I didn't endure the pain and discomfort of flying to get there. And there is a principle here that we need to get our heads and more importantly our hearts around. Looking to the joy of what is ahead of us enables us to endure the pain of what is temporary and what's in front of us. If we don't endure the hardship, we don't get the reward on the other side. 
And friends, this is exactly what Jesus modeled for us. I can promise you with full confidence, based on what I know of the New Testament and the Gospels, Jesus was not looking forward to the cross. In fact, let me take it one step further. Jesus said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup be taken from me. Jesus was not looking forward to being betrayed and being uh, declared guilty. He wasn't looking forward to the shouts of crucify. He wasn't looking forward to the whip ripping into his flesh and pulling out blood and guts from his back. He wasn't looking forward to the beard being plucked from his face. He wasn't excited about the crown of thorns being pressed into his skull so that blood and sweat together stung his tears. He, He wasn't looking forward to carrying his cross and then being stripped naked and nailed to it and suffocating. Jesus was not looking forward to that. Why did he go to the cross? Hebrews 12, 2 answers the question for us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus was not excited to die. What Jesus looked forward to was the moment he could say, it is finished. Father, I've done what you sent me to do. He was looking forward to resurrection. He was looking forward to ascension. He was looking forward to sitting down at the right hand of the Father, having brought millions of souls with him into heaven. Jesus saw what was before him, and it allowed him to get through even the pain of the cross. I want to close with a story of a third century African bishop, church father named Cyprian of Carthage. Cyprian was a well-known, well-esteemed leader in the third century church, and yet he eventually, as many of those men and women did, fell into the hands of people who wanted him dead, and they would ultimately execute him. I want to read for you what Cyprian said just before his death. It's a bad world, an incredibly bad world. But I have discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people are the Christians, and I am one of them. I want to leave you with a question to answer, not today maybe, but this week, as you live in this fallen world that we call planet Earth. By looking at your life, would your friends, neighbors, coworkers be inclined to believe the good news of Jesus or to reject it? I'm not asking you to, to pretend things are better. People can see through that. You don't, you don't need to do that. In fact, if you're doing that, cut it out. I'm talking about authentic joy. The kind that's revealed in Jesus, first and foremost. The kind that's rooted in the truth of God's word. The kind that's refined through suffering so that we can face anything and say, God is good, and I am ready. Would you pray with me? God, I know that in my own life, my journey with joy has been a challenging one. God, I'm prone, as we all are, to feelings of anxiety, discouragement, overwhelm, confusion, frustration. God, we acknowledge that's, that's part of the story. There's, there's, there's some truth about that. But Lord, there is a greater truth. 
there's an overcoming power, not only in the birth, but in the death and resurrection of the one we call Jesus. You, God, you have secured our place in heaven. And for that reason, we can have abiding, unrelenting joy in you. We thank you for it and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.